There are certain scenarios where a substitute is, is something that we, we want, and, and other scenarios where a substitute is something that we, we need. You find yourself in maybe an awkward social situation that you wish you could get out of. Uh, you wish you had a substitute to fill in for you right there so that you could be somewhere else. And there are scenarios where you, you need a substitute, where you, where you wish that you could clone yourself, where, where maybe work and family obligations collide and you realize you can't be in two places at once. You wish you could have a substitute stand in for you so you could be present in both places. Whether you want or you need him, Jesus is the substitute that we need. And that is the answer to our, our question as we conclude our series. What child is this? Jesus is the substitute that we need. Now, we might think uh, a lot of time has passed. You, you blink, you snap your finger, and it feels as if we were just around the table celebrating Thanksgiving dinner and eating too much pie, and now here we are into the new year, just like that. But I submit to you that, that we've even jumped a, a, made a wider leap from last week to this week, having just celebrated Jesus' birth only a week ago, and now in our gospel today, we find that child Jesus as a 12-year-old boy in his father's house. Talk about quite a jump how time flies. What's interesting about this account in the temple today is that it's really the only one that Scripture records for us in that 30-year period between Jesus' birth and what we are most familiar about Jesus' life and his ministry when he entered into his public ministry around the age of, of 30. There's nothing that is told us in Scripture from the time that he was born until that point except this account. And while we might have other curious questions about what it was like to be a teenager as Jesus, what, what it was like for him in his 20s, the only response that, that God gives to us is, is this account before us of Jesus as a 12-year-old boy. And it's interesting where we find Jesus in this one example of his life in this 30-year period. Worshiping. Now, even in a least-case scenario, the, the, the very least we could take away from this is that maybe God is trying to inform us, to, to remind us that worship, that gathering together in his house is not some take-it-or-leave-it option for the child of God, but that it's a very important matter. That's, that's the least. In a best-case scenario, we could presume that God was very deliberate in only recording this one event in the life of Jesus as if to emphasize very clearly his word and worship are to be priorities in the life of a Christian. Now, either way, we recognize there's a value in seeing our Jesus, our Savior, as our substitute in the way that he lived his life, that he loved God's word and his worship, as we find him here this morning in the temple. 
Now, that might be a little bit of a, a shock to see how Jesus could be left behind, but understand culturally at that time, you weren't talking about just the family jumping into the minivan to go one place or another, but it was an entire extended family. It was a caravan. These were events returning to, to Jerusalem for the celebration of the Passover that one could understand that, that you'd presume your child was with someone else. And yet here we see him, Jesus, the boy in the temple. Worship is to be a priority. Why do we need Jesus to be our Savior and our substitute? Because we recognize, well, there's a need. There's a need for this conversation about where worship and attending church falls in the spectrum of Christianity today. We're either inclined to, to blow it off in, in a, a very personalized world that says that, well, I, I don't need to go to church to be a Christian, and therefore we, we almost excuse worship attendance or attending church anymore. And many lament, though I would say and argue that they have good intentions behind them, you maybe have even been encouraged to attend church more frequently for maybe not the right reasons. Maybe the argument has gone something like this, well, in the past, when I was growing up, or a decade or two ago, churches were filled. Everybody went to church. It's just what you did. I remember growing up that unless we were out of town on vacation, we were in church on Sunday. And you just don't have that today, do you? And so the argument is, well, the church has been on the decline for decades, and therefore we need to right that ship, and so you should go to church. But I contend that that isn't a very effective way of dealing with church attendance or worship, is it? Why? Because it fails to acknowledge something significant. When we're talking about worship attendance, we aren't talking primarily about habits. We're talking about hearts. And if we want to only address the habit, the behavior, then we're missing out on the bigger issue, which is our heart and where our heart stands. The fact of the matter is this, here is, is the truth, that on any given Sunday morning, a church can be just as filled with empty people as it can with empty pews. Those empty people are really what Isaiah was talking about in chapter 29, verse 13, when he said, These people come near to me with their mouth and honor me with their lips, but their hearts are far from me. Their worship of me is made up only of rules taught by men. So I would contend that, that worship attendance not only isn't necessarily a, a means by which we gauge somebody's relationship with Jesus, but, but it isn't the only metric and it isn't probably even the best metric. It matters, sure. But how, is, how are we to understand our relationship with God through our attendance in worship, through, through being in his, his house. Well, we might be inclined to think that, that Christianity is on the decline because church attendance is on the decline. But what if there's another way to think about the statistics? You might be able to look back to the, the glory days, the good old days, whatever that relative subjective term is, when churches were filled and everybody went to church every Sunday. But isn't it just as possible that the only difference between then and now was that you had more hypocritical, disingenuous, immature Christians in church 
because they were more concerned with getting a check mark for their attendance or more concerned with being seen in worship than actually being there for the right heart reasons. And today, maybe the reality is that you have just as many serious, mature Christians who aren't there every Sunday, but their connection, their relationship with Jesus is as strong as it's ever been. And the only reason I point that out is not to justify one or the other, but to to help us realize this. Pride can work with either one, can't it? My pride can lead me to point out to others how regularly I'm in God's house for worship. My pride can just as easily make a case for saying, I am so mature in my Christian faith that I don't need to go to worship every Sunday. doesn't matter which category you fall in. The issue is the same for both. It's a matter of pride, which again points out and exposes that we aren't talking about a, a habit issue. We're talking about a heart issue. And if we're talking about a heart issue, then only Jesus can solve that. And so as we look at the account before us this morning, we rejoice that in Jesus we have the very substitute we need who loved God's word and worship perfectly. So it doesn't really surprise us when we see the response that Jesus gave to his mother and father after realizing that they had left Jesus behind and found him in the temple. And Luke records for us the very response that Jesus gave to his parents. He says in, in verse 48, after, or I'm sorry, verse 48 is where Mary asks the question, Son, why have you treated us like this? Your father and I have been anxiously searching for you. And Jesus says, why were you searching for me? Didn't you know I had to be in my father's house? He was genuinely shocked, surprised that his parents were looking for him. Where else would I be but in my father's house? house. And notice the way that Jesus stated, he said, didn't you know that I had to be in my father's house? And I want to think about that in two ways this morning, that Jesus had to be there. We know the one way that that we use that term because we're accustomed to doing the same thing. In fact, maybe you've already done it since the holidays, since Christmas season, and you have shared with somebody a food or a restaurant that you have been at, or uh, maybe a gift that you received. And, and when you're explaining that, you're excited about that to somebody else. You say, you have to go to this place to eat. Or you have to see this, this movie. Or that new gadget that you got, you have to get one of these. I can't imagine what my life was like before I had one of these. When we say you had to or you have to do something like that, We are expressing a passion or a desire or a purpose for that thing. And that's exactly what Jesus is saying. I had to be in my father's house. That's where I wanted to be. That's where I longed to be. That's what I'm here for. You can't keep me away. That's one sense that Jesus had to be there. The other sense is that quite literally, Jesus had to be there. Because remember that a holy, righteous God demands that when we worship him, we do so with pure and holy hearts. And you know full well the sad reality is that ever since Adam and Eve first wrongly worshipped, ever since then, there has not even been one single heart on one single occasion that has been able to worship God with purity and with holiness. Because even on our best day, our sin stains our worship. 
Whether or not it's that, that sin of, of lying to ourselves, that there's some place more important on a Sunday morning that God would have us be than, than his house. Or it's actually being in his house for worship, but being disengaged, being distracted, and then blaming others for what really is my heart issue. So quite literally, Jesus had to love God's word and worship perfectly for those of us who cannot, and that is, that's all of us. And here's the real marvel that, that in Jesus we have this perfect, this holy substitute that is spending his time as a 12-year-old boy in his father's house. It's that Jesus should not have been there being the one worshiping. Jesus should have been there being the one worshiped. Just as he was shortly after his birth, as a child, when the, the wise men came and they worshipped Jesus and brought their gifts to him, Jesus had every right as even a 12-year-old boy to set himself up in the temple courts among the religious leaders and the teachers of the law and point out to them, hey, I'm really the object of your worship. I'm here. I'm, I'm God in the flesh. You ought to be here, not dropping your coins in the temple treasury, but just go ahead and give them directly to me. Give your worship directly to me. But you don't see that in Jesus. You see Jesus focusing on worshiping his Father. So where, where our worship is selfish and we make it all about us, you have Jesus who made it all about his Father's will. Into this me-centered world came our Father-focused substitute and savior who wasn't concerned about carrying out his own will and, and doing what he wanted to or what he had every right to do while he was here on earth but was first and foremost focused on carrying out his father's will so where we come up with and believe every lie under the sun about not going to worship because i don't like the style i don't like the music i don't like the pastor or the message or, or i don't like the people or care for them i can live without them we have all of these reasons under the sun. None of them distracted or deterred Jesus from carrying out that perfect obedience to his Father to love his word and worship with a pure and perfect heart. And what he did for his heavenly Father, he also did for his earthly mother and father. Luke, as he wraps up this account of Jesus, the boy in the temple, points out another aspect of his obedience. In verse 51, Luke tells us, Then he went down to Nazareth with them and was obedient to them. That Jesus was not only concerned with carrying out his father's will, but recognized very well that being obedient to his mother and father was also an aspect of of worship. So he was just as concerned about obeying them as he was his heavenly father. He saw the two as interchangeable, that, that one was the other. And so, children, encouragement for you this morning to follow in Jesus' footsteps. It might be tough to hear, but you don't know what's best for you yet. So when your mother and your father, when your grandma, when your grandpa, when your family member drags you to church, don't whine and kick and scream and complain. Don't defy them, 
but follow in your Savior's footsteps and recognize that, that your guardians, that those who are bringing you to God's house, genuinely, truly want what is best for you. This is the, the time of year where we're accustomed to reading articles and seeing posts online about resolutions and goal setting and changes that we're going to make in this new year. Now, whether or not that's you, whether or not that, that applies to you or you, you care about any such things, uh, pretend with me for a moment that, that you have some ambitious goal that you have been working on. We'll say for a number of years you have wanted to, to organize and clean out your garage. All right? But it hasn't happened to this point. Well, probably because you fail to recognize that it's not just one single item on a, a list that you can check off. What you're really talking about is a, a very involved project that has many steps that are a part of it. When you think about cleaning a garage, first you, you have to sort through everything in the garage, don't you? Determine what are you going to hang on to? What is junk? What have you been hanging on to far too long? What do you want to give away to friends or family members or to goodwill? And what needs to be trashed? So there's a pretty big step just sorting through everything. And then once it's sorted through and you have decided what you're going to keep, then it needs to be organized and everything has to have its place. And of course, there is some measure of cleaning in the garage as well too. So you see, there's a number of steps with just this one goal or project. Now I want to ask you, what would be easier in this case for you to do? For you to be the one... That, that reaches that goal, that, that takes all of these steps, that eventually has a, a clean, organized, meticulous, beautiful, spotless garage, or to have brought in an expert to do it for you, and then all you have to do is keep it clean and organized. Isn't it much easier to maintain something than it is to, to get to that point or reach that goal. If the work has already been done for us, it's one thing to keep a garage clean versus the monumental task of getting it there. Do you realize that Christmas means that Jesus, your substitute, did all of the hard work for you? He carried out everything that was necessary for the perfection that God demanded. Jesus was not so much interested in keeping resolutions as he was your righteousness. And so he carried out, he perfected your righteousness for you. Where our hearts fail us, where, where selfishness drives us either to or from God's house because we buy into this lie that my relationship with Jesus has nothing to do with corporate worship and we forget that, that we are related and connected to the whole body of Christ and not just the head, but the whole body of Christ when we gather together with believers Jesus has done that perfectly. Jesus has been the obedience that our disobedience could never measure up to. The heavy work has been done. The goal has been reached. God's demand for perfection, for perfect love with a pure heart for his word and worship, Jesus already did that. And you know that, that means that he has removed from us the burden of having to be like Jesus. You don't have to anymore. He has changed your heart so that we, we get to. We are free to. 
What used to be a, a burden before I knew that Jesus met God's standard of perfection and holiness now is a, a joy and now I am free to follow in his footsteps. It would have been far too small a thing for Jesus simply to come to be a model or an example. No, he did all of it for us, even as a 12-year-old boy. And brothers and sisters in Christ, here is God's promise to you in the new year that as you embrace and appreciate his perfect obedience carried out for you, he not only frees you with the desire but also the ability to then imitate that obedience, to strive and long to follow in his footsteps, to love his word and his worship. Now, my, my commitment to you, and I would ask something of, of you in, in turn, that if you commit to, to working on driving and pursuing a, a love for God's word and his worship, for committing to gathering with God's people, with your church family in his house, more consistently this year than maybe you ever have. My commitment to you is that I will be as committed as I ever have been to making sure that worship and the preaching of God's word are worth it. And as we follow through on those commitments, in the freedom and the joy that we have in the perfect obedience of Jesus, you have my promise, more importantly, you have God's promise that you, that we, will be blessed all year long. May Jesus grant it. Merry Christmas. Amen.